12. Follow as I read verses 2 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning we're going to focus in first off on verse 6. Verse 6 which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This verse deals with Christian appetite. And it is a very poignant verse that automatically searches our souls and begs the question, do we have a hunger and thirst for God's righteousness or not? All of the Beatitudes ask these kinds of questions, don't they? They interrogate us. They're relentless. They put us under the spotlight. And verse 6 really is one in particular. It's, it's like when the Lord walked through the garden and asked Adam and Eve after they had sinned, where are you? And that had more to do with what they had done and the sin that they had committed than their locale in the bushes. Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on verse 6, said it this way. He said, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. It's hitting right to what makes us tick, what we long for, what we crave, and what we desire in our lives. And really, what makes or breaks our spiritual life is what we, in our heart of heart, crave the most. If we try to live these Beatitudes, for instance, by our own strength, superficially trying to obey them, then it's just a mere facade. Now, when Jesus used the idea of hungering and thirsting, he's not talking about what your stomach's going to be doing in about 45 minutes. You know, preachers, they never should talk about food from the pulpit, but I'm going to try to do it because it can be so distracting, right? But that sort of stomach growling thing, as scientists call bored. Borgerigmi, anyway, but anyway, that was for free. Uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? The nurses in the room are kind of shaking their heads, right? Borgerigmi, I think I'm saying that right. What Jesus is talking about is he's talking about being starving to the point of death. He's talking about real starvation or real deep hunger, uh, the, the need to survive by eating and drinking. I've been hungry before, and I've been thirsty. I grew up in a sort of a hot beach culture, and I've been on the beach when it's 100 degrees with 100 degree humidity, and I've been thirsty before, but not like this, not where I'm thirsty to the point of delirium. There are millions who are starving in our culture around the world, and we know this. There are record level levels of this around the world where people have a 
all-consuming passion for food and water as a means of survival. It's an appetite that dominates all other appetites. I was looking at uh, just a quote from a book called Water. It was published in 1966 by Ian Blaycock. And he was talking about a liberation of Palestine in World War I. And he said there was a combined force of British and Australian and New Zealand soldiers who were closely pursuing the Turks as they retreated from the desert. And Allied troops moved northward past Beersheba. They, as they did this, they began to outdistance their water-carrying camel train. And when the water ran out, their mouths got dry and their heads ached and they became dizzy and faint in the desert. Their eyes were bloodshot, lips were swelling and turning purple, and mirages became commonplace for them. They knew, these troops did, that if they did not make the wells of Shiriah by nightfall, thousands of them would die as hundreds had done already. Literally, they were fighting for their lives, and they managed to reach, managed to drive the Turks from Shariah and reach the water source. The water was distributed from great stone cisterns, and more able-bodied were required to stand at attention and wait for the wounded as those, and those who would take guard to drink first. It was four hours before the last man had his drink. During this time, the men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water to drink, of which they had had been their consuming passion for an agonizing amount of days. And it said that one of the officers who was present reported this. He said, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Shiraz Wells. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, and for his will in our lives, a all-consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich is the fruit of the Spirit that that would be? Well, we want the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, don't we? We want to live out the Beatitudes. And I think what's behind living these Beatitudes out is our appetite. And I want to to look at these Beatitudes in terms of verse 6. Do we hunger and thirst to follow the Lord's will in this way? We've been looking at eight attitudes that we're to fulfill as we hold on to the eight promises that follow each one. The first one we've looked at is verse 3, and that is an attitude of poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit. This is being poor in spirit. It's rejecting the lie that you can climb your way up to heaven with good works or gain God's favor by your good deeds. And as, as you realize your spiritual bankruptcy, you realize at the same time that you are a citizen of heaven. That's the promise of verse 3. You shall gain the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Verse 4 is the second attitude, and that is being mournful over your sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What he's saying here is that Christians are those who see their sin, and the only appropriate response to our sin is repentance. And by repenting, you realize the comfort of God in verse 4. They shall be comforted. What's the comfort? You've got a cleansed conscience. You realize that the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing your sin in this lifetime. So it's another incredible promise, but it comes from realizing your sin. The third beatitude 
attitude is found in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's sustained humility. Meekness is not weakness as the world puts it. It's, it's strength under control. It's, it's not permission to be spineless or lethargic or weak in that way. But at the same time, it's a controlled strength that's a sustained humility. It's where Jesus was hit in the face and mocked and he did not return in kind when he was going to the cross. It's Galatians 5.22. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Being humble and being under self-control by the Spirit, by the Spirit's power. It's the opposite of anger and it coexists with zeal. Moses, who was a zealous leader, was also the meekest man on the earth, according to the Old Testament. And Jesus became the ultimate meek man when he walked on this earth. All right, the fourth attitude is the one we're looking at this morning, the first one we're looking at, and that is verse 6. It's an attitude that is hungering and thirsting for God's will. Hungering and thirsting for God's will. Now, what I said before is that this attitude interrogates the believer. It puts us under the spotlight. We, we realize that we're, we're under examination Asking ourselves the question, what is it that I starve for or crave in this life? Is it God or is it other things? And I think what's so intimidating by this beatitude is the idea of the fact that we need to be hungering for righteousness. What is righteousness? What does it mean? That's very important to understand when, you under, when you're asking yourself the question, what am I supposed to be hungering for? Am I supposed to be hungering for a non-personal code of ethics? A bunch of do's and don'ts that I'm supposed to fulfill? You know, the Bible says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. In 1 Peter, it talks about being holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And that can strike fear into our hearts, can't it? Because we know how sinful we are. We know how, how much we fall short of God's holy standard. But this verse, verse 6, is getting at the heart of what it means to pursue holiness from your appetite, from your cravings, from your desires. Jesus knocks down the idea that this is fulfilling an attempt to fulfill a moral code of standards or, or moral code of ethics. Look at verse 20. He knocks it down right away. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, same word, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can never out-obey a Pharisee. You can never outlive moral codes that a Pharisee is doing or a scribe. They were perfect. They were fastidious with the law, so much so that they added their own commentary of the law of God that they put on equal par with the law and saying, look, you've got to obey all of these too. And they did it externally out of some kind of perfectionism, out of some sort of desire to gain favor with God. And it was all wrong. And Jesus was deconstructing that works-based gospel saying, that's not it at all. You're missing the heart of obedience. You're missing the heart behind a pursuit for holiness. It's not it at all. You're you're performance oriented. You're you're trying to be achievement oriented as opposed to appetite oriented. Jesus wants your heart, doesn't he? He wants your heart. He wants to give you grace to obey. There in other words, there must be a different way 
to hunger and thirst for righteousness than what the Pharisees were doing. Once you understand, by the way, that this is not about performance, but about appetite, it kind of clarifies what righteousness means. Some people put righteousness as something that we will only have when we're in heaven or God's affirmed state of righteousness where we are declared righteous today. But that's not what we're constantly hungering for. We know we're clean. We know we're saved. We know we're righteous before God because of the cross. We understand that. But Jesus is saying there's something more. There's a dynamic in your heart that needs to be happening every single day where you also hunger for righteousness. You know you're righteous. You know that you're going to be perfect, perfected in heaven. But at the same time, you've got to have a sustained hunger that's happening in the love dub of your heart. Hungering and thirsting are present active participles. It should be ongoing in our lives actively. But what is righteousness? Well, what came clear to me is how Jesus put it and how it's written down in Matthew's gospel. It's called hungering and thirsting for the righteousness. There's a definite article on the front of it. And I think that that definite article points to the quality of righteousness and connects this righteousness qualitatively with God's character. In other words, God is righteous and he wants us to long for righteousness like we would long for God. Another way to put it, longing for God's will. God's will. How do we long to obey these commands? Well, we want to in a very personal way. We want to obey God's will. We want to obey our God. And so God's righteousness is a personal thing, and it's personalized with God's very character. It's not a non-personal code of ethics that we want. It's longing after God. Let me fill this out with the psalmist's words. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. It says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's a window into what this looks like. It's following hard after his will. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, who said, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the passion behind this verse. And that's the heart that will obey God's word. It's the opposite of what the world craves. The world craves self. Philippians 3 is where the false teachers are described as having the end. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They live for their belly. And their glory, they glory in their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. 2 Peter 2.22. It's a, a point in scripture where Peter's picking up on a proverb. And he says, The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, coming from Arkansas before coming here, I've seen a few sow, I've seen a few pigs wallow in the mud, pretty gross. I've also seen some dogs return to their vomit before, right? Pretty sick. But you know what? That is exactly what Peter's trying to do. He's showing you how gross it is for people who who try to prop themselves up as false teachers. They're like, you know, going after God in a man-made way. And really, their hearts are turning towards the world all at the same time. And they return to the world to fill their bellies like a dog returning to its vomit. You as believers all have a craving for righteousness, the righteousness. You all crave for God. Now, your appetite might not be firing on all cylinders right now, 
But you have a seed of appetite in your soul where you long for God in this way. You're not going after God in a non-personal, code of ethics sort of way. You long for him and his righteousness, don't you? It's there. John Darby, an old saint, wrote this quote. He said, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. And I want this verse to initiate more appetite in your soul so that you'll have a greater opportunity to turn to your heavenly father. I want you to have appetite for God. I do. Jacob had this appetite when he was wrestling God. Remember, he was wrestling a Christophany, a a form of Christ in the Old Testament in Genesis 32. He said, the, the Lord said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's that kind of passion, right? Isn't that where we want to be in our appetite for God? David's passion, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, appetite. All believers have this appetite. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Now I've seen a few babies that are hungry in my lifetime. And you know what? When a baby is desperate for his or her milk, they believe that if they don't get their milk, they are going to die. And they want everyone to know that. They have no idea that if milk isn't working out, there's formula, there's other things. All they can think of is their one consuming passion, and that is to live by drinking some milk. Now, what does it mean to be satisfied? Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... The righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, ultimately, as Christians, we are satisfied because we know that we have eternal life. Now, we crave things intermittently, but ultimately we are satisfied. Jesus said this in John 4 to the woman at the well. He said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. So we have that general satisfaction. John 6, 35, Jesus at the Feast of Booths uh, was saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, obviously, we have been filled with eternal life. We understand that we are going to heaven and that is satisfying. That's true. But in one sense... We're satisfied, and in another sense, we are unsatisfied. We want more of God in this lifetime. It's Paul's words where he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It's not enough. He wants to know more of him in this lifetime, more of God's will. Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Psalm 3410, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That whole psalm, the 23rd psalm, is about God's sufficiency as our Heavenly Father. We don't want anything else but Him. And those are experiences that we have in this lifetime. We're satisfied and yet unsatisfied. What do I mean by that? Many of you have foods and drinks that you really like. 
I have some. I like to drink Starbucks coffee. I do. I, I do. I, I like it. And, and one Starbucks coffee drink is, is, a, is an appetizer for the second one. I mean, really, I'm drinking my first one just to warm up for part two, right? And, and I like that. And, and uh, we have a coffee drinking culture here. I like this. You know, it, it talks about satisfaction and unsatisfaction all the time in how much people are drinking coffee. I like Toll House chocolate chip cookies. I do. I like them. I like them when they're made in the pan. I like pan-style cookies. I'm not advertising. I'm just telling you. And I, I'm trying to get you to relate to me. I, you know, I like them hot, and I like them out of the freezer. I, and one cookie means five cookies, right? You don't stop with one. You, you, you're just eating to eat. And in a real sense, that's how it is in the spiritual life. That's how it should be. We have appetite, but, but our appetite is, is led by spiritual things, reading the Word of God, by fellowship that should spawn a desire for more. And that's how it works. But suddenly, our appetite will spoil, won't it? And we will wonder, why is it that I'm not hungry or thirsty for God at all? And we should ask ourselves that question, why did my appetite suddenly spoil? As a child, my appetite used to spoil so quickly, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I I just, I would get grossed out by something, I would see food hanging from someone's face or or something, and I was done. I was just, you know, it's great, thank you, it's a great meal, you know, whatever. I have become immune to that by having six children. There are all kinds of sudden atrocities that happen at my dinner table every single night of my life. Food flies off the table and back on the table, and who cares? It's just all edible. And you know what? If you don't eat it when it's put in front of you, it's gone. And so there is no time to be grossed out anymore. We have an eating culture in our home. It's more of a feeding frenzy. But we have to ask ourselves, why do we become weak-stomached in our Christian experience? Are we eating nutritiously, or have we fed ourselves with enough cotton candy of the world that we no longer want the meat and potatoes of Scripture, of the Word, of fellowship with other believers? We need to set our table anew with nutritious food from God's Word, with Christian relationships, in the context of discipleship relationships, so we can grow in truth and in righteousness so that we can connect with God's nature, which is righteous. We'll address that more at the end. The fifth attitude, though, I want to look at is found in verse 7. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. When studying this verse, I immediately thought of something that someone else thought of and wrote about, and that is that a lot of people interpret this verse legalistically. They say, look, you know, uh, I'm merciful, and so now I'm entitled to mercy. That's how they use it, kind of like Matthew 6.14. They would say, uh, you know, Jesus' words are, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's a sort of tit-for-tat Christianity where you're saying, listen, I forgive others and so I am entitled to forgiveness. I'm entitled to it. It's where you can hold it over someone's head and say, I'm merciful to you and so you need to be merciful to me. 
I think this is missing the point of mercy altogether. Altogether. I really do. Being merciful comes from seeing that you first needed mercy and that you see people who are in misery and need mercy from you. That's what he's talking about. It's like the picture of blind Bartimaeus who was in misery. He was blind and he positioned himself on the road to put himself in the way of mercy as Jesus was walking towards him from Jericho. Mark 10, 46 and 47. And they came to Jericho, and as he, Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples, with a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. It's a man who wasn't demanding Though he had emotion behind what he was saying, blind Bartimaeus knew that he was in need and he put himself in the way of mercy and Jesus extended mercy to him. Not because he deserved it, but because he was graced to receive it. In the same way, someone who is merciful knows, like blind Bartimaeus, that he has received mercy. That's why you give mercy, because you've been forgiven so much. And it's so amazing how unmerciful we can be towards people. It really is. It really is. I, you know, I was thinking about people who are on the side of the road just the other day and who are asking for contributions. And it's so easy to think and rationalize that moment away, isn't it? And say, you know, that person's going to spend that money unwisely. And perhaps we need to be discerning as to what we do in each particular instance and opportunity. But we need to be making those decisions as to how we're merciful or not merciful in the context of how forgiven we are, how much mercy we've been shown. And relationally with people, I mean, you know, when when someone forgives you and then you turn around and you're unforgiving to someone else, that is not reflecting mercy. Matthew 18 is where Jesus picks this idea up. He's talking about the forgiving master and the unforgiving servant. You've heard the story, right? It's a knifing parable, a knifing one. He says, uh, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You know what that represents? That represents a lifetime's worth of debt. It's unpayable. And so, the king says, and since he could not pay his master, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. In other words, they had to be enslaved for the rest of their lives as a payment towards this unpayable debt. Verse 26, the servant begs for mercy, imploring him, falling on his knees. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything back. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Do you think the servant learned his lesson about being merciful because he was shown mercy? Well, no. He comes across one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is three months wage. A very payable debt 
It's not an unreasonable reasonable amount to owe someone. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me. Again, showing himself to be in need of mercy, in, in need of pity. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What did he do? He put him in debtor's prison. In other words, this is a three-month wage that, that's owed to this other servant. He says, no, you're going to debtor's prison. Your whole life is lost over this debt. We say, man, how ungracious is that? But when we are ungracious to people, we are neglecting and forgetting the grace of God that's been showered upon us. We have an eternal debt that was paid for us by God's Son. So when we are unmerciful to people, we are ignoring the gospel. We are not letting that truth melt our hearts. The whole idea, again, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This would be that hunger where we're hungering to be merciful to people and thirsting to do so because of our God, because of the gospel. There's a great warning in this saying that those who are unmerciful will be punished. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt So also, verse 35, this is the key, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, watch this, from your heart. The issue comes down to the heart. It comes down to the heart. It's realizing the grace that's been given to us and mercy and bestowing it on others in kind. What's the comfort? What's the blessing of being merciful? They shall receive mercy. This is receiving the confidence that you are saved. You have mercy in this life and you have mercy for all of eternity. All right, here's the sixth attitude we're going to look at. Six out of eight. It's the attitude of being pure in heart, verse eight. Pure in heart. This is a very sobering beatitude because we know how deficient we are in this area. We know how impure we are in our hearts, in our minds, in our motives. Sin has has entered into our lives from birth. And so when we hear David's question that I read earlier from Psalm 24, who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? We aren't necessarily encouraged by that. We don't automatically think I shall ascend the hill of the Lord. He says, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We know our sin. It's ever before us. And we need to understand that we also have the grace of God to give us a pure heart. So that the call to ascend the holy hill of the Lord is a call towards relationship. But we know our sin. Genesis 6 is one of the most 
dominating verses in terms of how sinful we really are. Genesis 6 is talking about mankind and as it was getting worse and worse right before God was going to destroy the world in a flood. And you know, you might remember Genesis 6-4 where it's talking about how mankind was cohabitating with people who were under demon influence. There was the Nephilim who were giants in the land and they were really known as a strong race of people. A race that was uh, towering above other people. They were like a super race. And then they were cohabitating with the sons of God, which could be demons themselves or demon-influenced people. And it made a super race of mighty men who were known as the men of renown, Genesis 6-4. But these men of renown, though put on a pedestal from the outside, God knew them from the inside. And Genesis 6-5 is a commentary on their hearts. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Talk about an inescapable string of words, right? Every intention of the thoughts of his his heart was only evil continually. It's sin that's riddled through and through in the life and heart of mankind. It's the totality of a person's inner man. It's being totally depraved. Jesus also added commentary to what is in the heart in Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You know, when we are walking in righteousness with this as our backdrop, it's a picture of the grace of God, isn't it? It's like the black felt where the diamond of God's grace is laid on top of it, shining brightly. Where we say, wow, but by the grace of God, I would be dominated by that kind of heart. Mark 7, 15, Jesus confronting externalism. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. It's not putting something in that makes you bad. He says, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So we know this. We know that we are in a wretched state. Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev said it this way. I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. We know this. So purity here, being pure pure in heart cannot mean perfection. This is not talking about sinless perfection. Being pure in heart. This is the heart that is graced by God. This is the heart of a believer who knows his or her sin and is relying in a poor in spirit sort of way, in a mournful sort of way, in a meek sort of way, in a way where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness before your God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me grace. That's purity of heart. That's purity of heart. That's being graced by God. That's having spiritual integrity. It's being blameless. I was thinking about uh, my former chancellor and uh, spiritual leader when I was at Liberty University, Jerry Falwell, what he said over the casket of a woman who had served in his church for 30 or 40 years as a Sunday school teacher. Great woman of God. He, He just stood over her and said, this woman was not perfect, but she was blameless. And that's what we want, right? 
We're not going to be perfect in this life, but we want to be pure of heart. And that means we're graced by God to be blameless, to have our sins reconciled and right before our Lord. That's all we could ask. You know, the Lord sees into your heart. He sees into your heart right now. Verse 8 says as much. Blessed are the pure in heart. You're blessed because God is seeing something in your heart of purity. But there's a blessing in return, and that is, for they shall see God. I want to pick up on this idea of God seeing into your heart, because when he chose David to be the king that would succeed Saul, he was choosing a man that had a purity of heart. 1 Samuel 16, 1-13, you might turn there. It's the story where Saul had blown it, he had offered the unlawful sacrifice. He took Samuel's position and offered the sacrifice going into battle out of fear. He had also spared King Agag's life, the life, I mean, the king who was the king of the Amalekites. They had been destroying the Philistines and several other um, warring nations. And then the Amalekites, they, they destroyed them. But he spared Agag as a trophy, probably a testament to Saul's pride, where he's saying, look, I have this trophy in shackles. And instead, God wanted Saul to wipe Agag out as a point of purity. So, the Lord sent Samuel to anoint a new king. He said, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, I want to pick up on that word provided real quick, because that is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which simply means to see. And when God was saying to Samuel, go fill your horn up because I have provided the new king to anoint, he was saying, I've seen him. I've seen him. What he means by that is I've seen into this man's heart. That's what's going on. Now, Immediately in this, in this context, Samuel is evaluating the sons of Jesse externally. By contrast, Samuel cannot see into the heart of these sons, whereas God has. And it says in verse 6, when they came, the sons, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Don't look and see in him in an external way on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. Samuel was evaluating him in terms of structure and size. But then it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That word sees, it's that ra'ah word. It's a theme throughout this section. God had chosen one of the sons of Jesse because he had seen into his heart And he's saying, look, the Lord sees into hearts. Man can only look at the external. So seven sons are paraded in front of Samuel. And the Lord kept saying, neither has the Lord chosen this one, nor that one, nor this one. And then finally, after all of the sons had passed in front of Samuel, except one, Samuel says, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. In other words, there's, there, there is 
another guy out there. Now, he's not a warrior like these seven that have passed in front of you. This is kind of the youngest um, baby of the family. He's out there with the sheep. Jesse said, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy complected, had beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. That phrase, this is he, literally is, this is the one I have seen. It's picking up on that same word. It's the one I've seen. This is him. This is him. What does the Lord see when he looks at your heart? And here's the issue. Are you trusting in externalism? Are you trusting in your, your size, your stature, you know, the title behind your name? Are you trusting in anything else besides the Lord to be connected with God? We can't hunger and thirst for righteousness externally like a Pharisee. Our righteousness has to be born from within, from our appetites and from holiness in our hearts. And that's what God wants. In other words, back to our our text, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If God sees your heart as pure, you're going to see God in a new and greater way, having the eyes of faith opened where you're going to have sweet fellowship with the Lord. You know, the Beatitudes themselves bring us to blessed are the pure in heart. You begin by being poor in spirit. You begin by mourning over your sin. You you have a meekness about you. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're merciful to other people. All because you're humble in heart. And it brings this purity of life. And enables you to see God in a fresh way. By God's grace. Now here's a few points as we close. Take home points. I want to go back to our original starting place. What do you do when you're not hungry and thirsty for righteousness? A few tips. And what I'm working from here is I'm working from appetite in our natural realm, physical appetite, and I'm comparing it to spiritual appetite, back and forth. First of all, confess your loss of appetite as sin. Now, we all lose our appetite from time to time in the physical realm. We're not hungry and we're not thirsty when other people are. But we need to diagnose why that is in the spiritual realm. We need to say, why is it that I don't hunger for God right now? What's wrong? And call a spade a spade. Call it sin. Admit that you've been feeding yourself something else. Confess that to the Lord. Think through your present diet. What are you feeding yourself with? Secondly, surround yourself with hungry and thirsty people. It's very important for you to have appetites spawned by your relationships with other people. This happens in the physical realm as well, right? If you're not hungry, sometimes when you get around people that are chowing down, you go, you know what? I said I didn't want an order of fries, but hey, I'm going to go up and, and get an order of fries after all. You know, because you guys are eating, you know, I, you know, I do that all the time with my kids. You know, it's like, no, I'll, I'll pass. Just get the kids, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm getting a double cheeseburger up front, right? Because I'm, I'm eating around people. Brady, uh, you know, one of the twins... Uh, he, he is famous for taking his plate and throwing it on the floor with the food on it. And he's making a statement, hey, you know, I'm not hungry right now as our two-year-old. And so I put the food back on the plate and put it in front of him. And before long, 
just as the other kids are eating, he's eating the very food that he threw on the floor. And I think this is so, such an appropriate analogy for the spiritual realm. You, you might think, man, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in a sin pattern. I'm, I'm, I can't get out um, from under these issues in my life. But just by spending time with other people who are regularly eating and drinking from God's well, it will help you to create an appetite for eating spiritual food. And don't eat too much, you know, right away. Eat what they're eating and eat in the way that they're eating. Ask them, you know, what is it that you're eating? What is it that you're feeding on? What books are you reading? What is it that's thrilling your soul? Because I want to eat what you're eating. Then eat small, consistent portions. Don't bite off more than you can chew. I think sometimes people go, yeah, you know, I've had no appetite. And so now I'm going to eat it all, you know, and you do too much too quickly. Instead, just start small. And gain some momentum if you're, you know, wanting to have more Bible time with your family. Don't say, hey, we're going to sit and read through the book of Job tonight, you know. By golly, you know, we've had no appetite. Oh, yeah, we're going to eat, you know. Don't do that. Just, just read a psalm or read a few verses or review what we just went through here in the Beatitudes. Start small and you'll be thankful that you did a little bit rather than biting off too much and doing something once and then, you know, throwing in the towel for a month. Then finally, go back to the Beatitudes. Use these Beatitudes as a stair-stepping way towards building appetite. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. Be meek. Examine your appetite. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. These are all gifts to us to examine ourselves so we can ask soul-searching questions, repent where we need to repent, and pursue God, being hungry and thirsty for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these lessons in the Beatitudes. We thank you for your lordship in our lives. And we pray, God, that we would hear your truth. And, Lord, that you would, Lord, you would be sparking appetite in our soul to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand now for our final dismissal. I'm going to ask Pastor Mike Weber to come up. He's going to close us in a word of prayer. We have an information table over here always for... Uh, for you to be connected to Anchorage Grace, to find out what's going on, to find take-home points or resources or, or anything at all, and we want to answer your questions there. Also, we have counselors that are over here who want to pray with you. If you need the Lord, we want to pray with you and help you find him even this morning. I'll be in the back to greet you as you leave this morning. Father God, we thank you that you see us. You know everything about us inside. Father, you know the thoughts that we have. You know us inside and out. Thank you, Father, that we had nothing to offer you, and yet you gave us your Son, Jesus Christ, and we have truly been blessed. We thank you from us to you, for the mercy given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. May our hearts thirst and hunger for the righteousness of God, for the purity of Jesus Christ. Grace us. We give you praise for all who we are, In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to God be the glory we pray.
praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great, great week.